It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. One of the things that Whitney and I do here behind the scenes of This Might Get Uncomfortable is we often talk about not only the subject matter of previous episodes and seeing how you, dear listener, and our listeners around the world respond to those topics, but moving forward, what we want to discuss. And as it stands at the time of this recording, our most popular episodes are actually about relationships. Now, we've had behind the scenes talks in moments of, oh, should we make This Might Get Uncomfortable a relationship podcast because those are doing so well. But we've decided not to niche down in that way because we really want to talk about a lot of subjects pertaining to wellness, mental health, emotional wellness. Relationships is certainly a part of that conversation. But it is interesting to notice how our most popular and most downloaded episodes are surrounded with the subject matter of how we relate to one another as human beings. And in the past two weeks, I came across a really interesting article that popped up in my feed that I, I shared with Whitney earlier today from The Atlantic. And we often like to share articles with each other and for you, dear listener, and anyone who wants to access the article and anything we're going to discuss today, you can go to our website, which is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Go to the podcast section. It will take you to the show notes that will contain the article that we're going to use as our jump off point for another episode about relationships. It's, I think it's been a minute since we actually discussed this, Whitney, so I feel like we're, we're due. So this article from The Atlantic popped up, and the headline is, What if friendship and not marriage was at the center of life? And the subhead is, Our boyfriends, our significant others, and our husbands are supposed to be our number one. Our worlds are backwards. And it's a really long article, so I'm not going to read too much ad nauseum from it, but the gist of it is detailing some women that they profiled who were in, I suppose, platonic partnerships where they put their friendship and their connection at the very top of their level of importance and consideration and attention in their lives, not their romantic relationships. And it's an absolutely beautiful story about what well, they give a few examples. The, the primary story is uh, two women named Cami and Kate and how they met and how they bonded and their experience with romantic relationships and that their connection endured so much, so many life changes, moving across the country, changing jobs, changing professions, cha changing husbands, changing partners. And the framework of this, I guess, this whole thing is that they talk about examples of friends like this that sweep into frameworks that are typically reserved for romantic partners, that in some of these examples, these platonic partners will live in each other's houses that they purchase together. They'll raise each other's children. They'll use joint credit cards. They'll have the same bank account. And in some states, they'll actually have the power of attorney and medical leverage for each other, depending if, if something happens. So many of these friendships, these platonic partnerships have, I suppose, the structure and the trappings of romantic relationships, but just not the sex. Like That's the one thing missing. And it talks a lot about how people get very confused by this type of relationship. Like, well, you, you guys are, wait, you guys are together, but you're not sexual and you're not married, but you have all the frameworks of it. And it's interesting to talk about the pushback for these kind of platonic relationships that society and friends and family get so confused. And I suppose even maybe, con you know, intimidated by in certain things. So I wanted to dive into this today, Whitney, because I find it really fascinating. The article is really a wonderful piece of storytelling, first of all, in framing this. And 
some of the terms they use, which some of these I've never heard of, were instead of romantic partners, they use terminologies like best soul friend, platonic life partner, my person, my ride or die, my queer platonic partner, or big friendship. And I just think it's so interesting because as we on the podcast continue to explore trans identities, moving beyond gender pronouns and and binary thinking, we're really committed to exploring areas of life that we're not really familiar with. So this is something, Whitney, that I think is so fascinating. And I'm wondering how it lands with you. We can dig even deeper into this because there's some really interesting historical context too about some huge, huge people in our history that had very similar relationships like this. So it's not necessarily a new thing. They give examples from the 1800s, the 1900s of people that were in platonic relationships, but not sexual ones. So I think much like bisexuality or transgender, these are things that have been happening, I suppose, behind the scenes of human society for a long, long time, but are now only recently being, I guess, talked about in the mainstream. So I just think it's super interesting to think about in this context because I don't know. I think sometimes I think <laughs> if if my romantic relationships don't work out, maybe I should just get a commune with all of my friends and we just be in a relationship together. I've had thoughts like that before. So I, I don't know that I have a lead off question per se, Whitney, but I'm wondering how this subject uh, lands for you. Well, it's definitely something that I think is really neat. And I think I can relate to it in some ways. I grew up with a really close best friend who lived across the street from me. And We've gone through lots of ups and downs over the years, but we've we've always kept that term for each other. I've referred to you as a best friend and you and I have talked about like how it actually would be neat to live right next to each other and even like build a tunnel system so our animals could run between our homes, you know. And I mean, on that note, that's one of the big perks in this article. They reference how good friends could take care of each other's children and I really do think that our society would benefit from more dynamics like that because a lot of us feel very alone. Even if we consider our animals our children, we all know what it's like when we need someone to watch them. And we usually call in our friends. I mean, some people prefer to have professionals, but I usually prefer to have somebody that I know close who loves my animal, Evie in particular, and I can trust And it's also nice to have more of a trade relationship than a financial exchange, I think. I actually think in general, we could benefit from supporting each other. And and maybe trade isn't the best word, but it is that idea of, of having each other's backs. And I've also thought about my relationship with my sister. My sister and I are very close. I consider her a friend, I guess, but we've transcended the word friend, I suppose. like We just have a, a really intimate relationship. And there were times where I thought, wow, it'd be so nice to just live with my sister, you know, <laughs> like just to have that that loving support that we have with each other, especially right now. Uh, she is living by herself and she lives in a really cool home. And I thought like, gosh, if it were easier to travel or I felt more comfortable traveling right now during the pandemic, I wouldn't even think twice about just going and staying with her for as long as I felt like it because I just love being around her and I love helping her out, supporting her. And and I think that article brought this up for me too. And it also reminded me of how people are very confused by our relationship, Jason. And, and to your point, like, and one of the major points in this article is like, I actually just last night was having a conversation with somebody who was so surprised when I said that you and I went from dating to friendship, whereas most people have this model in their head or They just believe that people typically go from friendship to dating and not the other way around. 
but you actually have had relationships with multiple of your previous partners. And I think that's really cool. And it's very rare and confusing to people, but that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with it. I I think a lot of people think, oh, well, that's just not possible. It's not possible for people of the opposite sex to be friends. It's not possible for people who used to date to be friends, which I just think is so bizarre. And it just reminds me of this article because we have so many limitations in our mind and that's just really what they are. They'll stay limitations if we don't consider doing them differently. And I think that's one of the big things that I'm perceiving from this article. And lastly, another example that came up for me because I was reflecting on how the media might represent this. I think of actually there's a great show on Netflix called Grace and Frankie. And it's about these two older women who have this really tight friendship and they live together and they date. I think one of them gets married in the season and I haven't been up to date on it fully, but I really love that show. And it's just this beautiful story of, of two older women that at some points were single and dating and just that deep bond that they have together. And I'm trying to think of other examples, but I think we need more of that. We need more to represent people of all different ages and backgrounds and ethnicities and sexuality and and gender. And just to see more stories like this to help us see it more as the norm, I think. I also think that we're in a time where we're breaking out of or redefining what we perceive as normal because there are so many different variations. And we, we are fortunate to live in a time that tends to be more accepting. And it's it's more common for people to do things that are outside of traditional relationship norms. So I think that's really great for us. And I believe that we're making progress. We just still have some some ways to go. What I think is interesting is how there's a lot of perception around what other people believe is going to make you happy. But I think in some some cases, and I'll give some examples, when people ask, I guess, relationship questions, Whitney... I think it's also about, hmm, how do I phrase this? Like them wanting to gauge whether or not you're operating in a framework that is safe and familiar to them, right? So, you know, I talk about my mom pretty often on the podcast. I've talked about my mom and my dad and my family have been really open about that. You've talked about your family too. And I think an interesting dynamic in terms of love, romance, partnership, and happiness my mom all the time will say, you know, I just really want you to be happy. I want you to be fulfilled in your life and and however that plays out for you. And I feel blessed to have a mom that has flat out told me, you know, if you came out as gay or bi or trans or whatever, I would love you no matter what. And I know that's true. I very much believe her and know she's sincere in that. The thing is interesting though, is when she tells me about colleagues of hers or work acquaintances or friends that are like, how's Jason doing? Like, oh, he's okay. You know, he's He's doing all right. He's still in California. Like, well, does he have a wife? Is he married? Is he ever going to have kids? You know, these are verbatim questions. Does he have a wife? Is he married? Is he ever going to have kids? Isn't he in his 40s now? And she gets a decently high amount of these type of questions. And I think it it highlights what is a pretty common form of questioning wit of people examining the dynamic and the framework of your relationships in your life to gauge whether or not you're happy. You know, like, is he happy? Is he fulfilled? Does he have a wife? Does he have kids? Well, if he doesn't have a wife and he doesn't have kids and he's approaching his mid-40s, how could he be happy? Like, there's subtext there. There really is a lot of subtext in those questions. And I think to this point, this Atlantic article talking about platonic life partnership or being lifelong best friends, even moving in together, you know, as, as you <laughs> you joked, we'd get a couple of houses and have an animal tunnel. I think this goes toward the fact that there are a lot more different kinds of love than just eros. And I think in the Western 
world, in Western countries, we tend to focus on using the word love as synonymous with eros, with romantic love. But then again, we use love in a lot of different contexts, don't we? I love my car. I love my cat. I love my best friend. I love my new t-shirt. We throw that word around, but we can also agree that the qualitative difference of how we love our t-shirt and our cat and our car and our best friend and our mom and our lover are all very different and nuanced. So it's almost like we have this fixation on romantic love. That is the standard for happiness and fulfillment. But there's so many different expressions of love that you know, in traditional, you know, English, we just have that word, but we go back to the Greeks and they had like philos and eros and agape and and all these different qualities of love instead of just one word for it. So I think language is partially to blame in this consideration, but I think also society's metric of happiness and fulfillment by you have to be partnered romantically, you have to be in some sort of, you know, marriage structure and you have to have kids. And maybe that's just a Midwest thing or the people that, you know, my mom's in, interacting with. But I know too, Whitney, you and I have discussed this over the years and, and you know, from time to time, you also get inquiries from your family about this stuff, don't you? Or, or have they kind of like eased back on that over the years? I think that comes often from my mother who has that mindset as many people in her generation. My dad doesn't seem to care. My dad's very liberal, very accepting and yeah, it's it's a huge blessing because <laughs> honestly, I, I can't really think of my dad caring that much. Like he's just so maybe he's just trusting of me and my decisions. It's interesting. My dad also is a little bit stoic. So sometimes he might just not express it verbally, but it's fascinating with him. But my mom is very opinionated and very traditional in a lot of ways. And and I think tradition is really interesting because to me, it feels limiting sometimes. Like sometimes I feel it can be comforting, but that there's limits in it. And comforting, I mean that it feels familiar. It feels safe. I think there, that's a huge part of, of traditional models of identity is that it's familiar and it's safe. And just psychologically, when something's familiar, we equate that with being safe because we understand it. When we, when we don't understand something, when it's unfamiliar to us, it can feel unsafe. It can evoke feelings of insecurity within us. I often think that that's a reason that my mom prefers tradition. It's because it's just very familiar to her. You know, it's, it's like a sure thing. Like, I know this works. Other people have done it. And I think for you, Jason, being a rebel... You're more comfortable doing things that are outside the norm. And for me, being a questioner, as we've talked about before, these are our, our tendencies as defined by Gretchen Rubin's framework around this. I question things until I understand them. So that in, in many ways allows me to go outside the norms because if they can make some sense to me, then... I don't have a problem with them. And that puts me into that gray area. It's like, if you can explain why there's a benefit, then I will generally be very accepting of it. And then I also try to be accepting of things even, even if I don't understand them because I'm driven to include everybody. Inclusivity is incredibly important. And I think I have that to each their own type of mindset. Not everybody's going to be that way. You know, not everybody feels comfortable being open-minded because like I said, it sometimes being too open leaves room for people that are uh, maybe the out outsiders and the outsiders can feel really scary, you know? And and I think this mentality and, and maybe having a society that's opening up to different gender norms and different sexuality and 
becoming a little bit more fluid and inclusive and accepting, that is threatening to some people because they don't feel like there's a solid ground to stand on. Plus, it also goes against some religious beliefs, right? And so tradition can also be tied into religion in a lot of ways. And that's always an interesting thing to examine. And I, and I honestly think that's one of the reasons that I don't really align with with religion super strongly is because I, it feels too rigid. And I remember when I was going to church for a little while, that may, often made me feel really uncomfortable. Like The Christian viewpoint around sexuality and gender was... Did not f- that felt too rigid for me because even though I am cisgendered and straight, you know, I still have such an open mind, try to have a really open heart as well. And it made me uncomfortable that perhaps people at my church were, were not in that same mindset and like this idea of like something being, being allowed or acceptable or okay. Like, for example, friendships, you know, that came up too. I, one comes immediately to mind. One of my friends was married to a guy that I thought was really great. And, you know, we would be at church or at events at the church and have great conversations. You know, it just felt like a natural friendship between us. And we were watching a TV show that I wanted to s- discuss with him. And so every time I would see him at church, we'd like, I'd be like, oh my gosh, you see the new episode of the show. One day outside of church, I was like, oh, I wonder what he thought about this. So I texted my friend and I said, hey, like, would you mind sharing your husband's phone number? I wanted to text him about this TV show. And she told me she felt uncomfortable with it and explained that she didn't think that it was appropriate for us to be communicating. These were people in Los Angeles in their early 30s, seemingly pretty woke in some ways, right? And pretty liberal in some other ways. In fact, I'm I'm fairly certain they were literally liberal in their in their viewpoint. But because of of some of the constraints of of Christianity that I didn't fully align with, I suppose. And again, like it means something different to a lot of different people. But for them, it was not acceptable for men and women to be friends, especially if if the male was married. I just like to this day, I really just don't understand. And I think it comes down to that old school fear of, well, if they're friends, what if that she even said this to me, it's like, I don't want to add any temptation. And I'm thinking, that's so interesting, because you can't control temptation, right? Like, but so many people try to, they're like, well, maybe if I put the blinders on my partner, then I can control my partner's behavior. And that's where I'm really just, I think it ties into this whole conversation. It's like our viewpoints on friendships and these belief systems we have. And of course, there are deep human desire that maybe we don't have as much control over as we think we do, but that's what makes us human. I guess it comes down to trying to control ourselves so much and we try to control and create safety because it feels so threatening these basic human desires. But I think those human desires can be there and maybe a little less controlled and like just allowing ourselves to be human is ultimately something I would like to see more of, even if it makes me uncomfortable or feel unsafe, that's okay. I guess I would like to see more people get more uncomfortable with these things because I think that gives us the broom to flourish and open up our ideas to different relationships. What's interesting to me, this this conversation about temptation, Whitney, to me, it's it's not about 
I think that there's part of the reason why I think addictive substances and addictive marketing and social media and, and a lot of the things that we talk about here on the podcast are so effective is because our brains are wired for those things. So to me, it's it's almost like if I put if I put my self into a, a relationship where I'm worried about the other person being tempted, it's not so much the temptation or the desire or the thoughts of wanting things that I would be worried about. It's it's like, do I have enough? Well, first of all, realizing I can't control another person. That's the first thing, right? Is is no matter what steps I might take to inoculate this person from wanting someone else or wanting to have sex with someone else or being tempted or even having the thought of it. I can't, I can't control that person's thoughts or actions. Even, you know, in a structure of marriage, I mean, we talk about tradition and maybe that's the quote safe choice. I mean, look at the infidelity rates. It's not, it's not like the institution of marriage has prevented infidelity far from it. It, it. In some cases, if you look at the work of Esther Perel and her examination into psychology and sexuality, she posits a theory sometimes that going into a structure of marriage or a committed relationship without being clear about who you are or what your real intentions are lead to more infidelity because we're not taking away desire and we're not taking away temptation and we're not taking away human want to your point, Whitney. We can't, you know, we could lobotomize ourselves, yes, but we're, you know, proverbially speaking, we're not lobotomizing ourselves to the point where we're just robots or automatons who don't want anything. So I guess my point is it's more about do I have a foundation of, of trust and communication built in a relationship to the point that I know they're going to be tempted I know that they're human. They're going to have sexual thoughts about someone else. They're going to have different desires. But instead of acting on those things without bringing it up, is the communication and the trust solid enough where they could come to me and say, hey, I'm having feelings about so-and-so, or I, have a, I had a thought about this. So to me, it's not about preventing temptation or desire. It's about building a, a structure of communication and trust where you can bring those things to the table and discuss them. Because I think in a, in a lot of contexts, if you're in a relationship that's too controlling, you know, I think, well, I was going to say, I think at the core people want freedom, but I think some people really do want to be controlled and feel safer being controlled and being, being, you know, some people do feel safer of just, you lead, you tell me what to do, you're in control of the relationship, I'll just follow. Some people do prefer that for a litany of reasons. But I think if you try and force a standard onto someone or try and prevent their behavior, in most cases, people will rebel at some point against that. They will absolutely rebel in some way. So the example you brought up of this 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 former friend of yours not wanting her husband to be tempted by a text thread of you, it's like, mm, what's their level of communication and trust in that relationship would be my question. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it's interesting because I remember also, it might have even been the same friend, but I've heard from several friends of mine that are married, like they describe their relationship as very different. And I've never been married, so I don't know what that's like. But I'm fascinated by marriage, and it's something that has evolved for me over time. I've come to a point similar to how I feel about having children. It's like, I'm not putting my pressure on it to happen or not. Because if I get married, I want it to feel like an intentional thing, not something I do just because I feel like I should. Going back to your point, Jason, of all of these constructs around happiness being so tied, because I know plenty of people personally that are are not only unhappy in their marriages, but perhaps even 
less happy than they would be if they weren't married or maybe they are with the wrong person, you know, or or maybe it's I don't even the term wrong person is also kind of odd because <laughs> some you know you can try your hardest. I, I remember when we have had Sunny on our show, which is an episode I'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. She talked about how she thought that she picked the perfect husband and they were going to be together forever and their relationship didn't go in that direction. And that takes a lot of acceptance. I think we have so much fear around marriage that we try to control it in all these ways. It feels unsafe. It feels terrifying for some people to get a divorce. You know, we have so much stigma around divorce. We just have so many different intense emotions around marriage. And the older I got, the more I thought, like, I'm okay if I don't get married. I don't need to get married to be happy or feel satisfied. I don't even need a romantic partner to feel happy or satisfied. And I think that's kind of a radical idea for some generations. But I think the younger generations, as was pointing out in the article, they're getting married later on in life. You know, growing up, both you and I, Jason, we had that statistic, which may still be there, if not increased, is like 50% of marriages ended in, in divorce. You know, like this high percentage of them looming over our heads. I think a lot of us grew up. I mean, my parents seem very happy and they're still together. So I was fortunate in that. And I grew up with a lot of people whose parents I perceived to be happy. Most of my friends' parents are still together from my childhood. I don't know how we (laughs) not falling into the statistics, but I certainly, as I got older, started to meet more people that are children of divorced parents, like or or parents that, that were never married, like yours, Jason. Right? Your parents were never married, correct? Yeah, that's right. It's interesting. And and I guess my point being that we grew up with this idea of seeing a lot of examples of relationships that don't work. Examples of people that aren't happy. And I think many millennials and people in, in, in that range of generation have grown up wanting to find happiness and put it making happiness a priority. I mean, right now there's such a big movement around purpose. That's a word that I hear over and over again. And I think the younger generations especially are growing up feeling like purpose is is very important. I think we are learning to untether ourselves from from things like productivity and hustle. And so when it comes to our, our personal and professional lives, we're starting to redefine a lot. We're starting to push back against some of these traditional models that we've seen for our relationships and our friendships and our work lives. And I think that's really cool. And I think that we're doing that because there's a desire to have a life without limits. I think we see more possibilities. I think we're fortunate that we live in a time where we have access to more information and we live in a country that seems like it's becoming more accepting. It's it's teetering on that line. <laughs> we have freedom of speech. We have more equality. Not for everybody yet. We still have a long way to go, but it's there has been a lot of progress made if you look back over history, I believe. And I think that redefining all of our relationships is something that many of us are open to doing. And I suppose as we see the more rigid generations phasing out, you know, getting older and passing away, and we see the more open-minded generations having more power. I mean, you can even see this happening in the government, right? Like someone like AOC, right? AOC? 
Correct. Second guessing <laughs> that acronym. She, I feel, I think of to how she's representing a new way of living, you know, and standing up for people in, you know, in terms of gender and wealth. And she's just got a very modern viewpoint that she's bringing to politics, which I think is going to be, and I hope actually going to be something that we see more and more of. You know, it seems that many of us look at at the older politicians as being like old white men. Now we have more women. We have younger people coming in. We have people of color. We have people of representing in in some really profound ways. So hopefully this country will start to reflect that. And, you know, who knows that if that'll fully happen in our lifetime, Jason. But I see a lot of promise in this. And I think it's just an important thing for us to have conversations about and also make sure, as I said earlier, that it's represented in the media. You know, like I said, I would love to see more TV shows and movies reflecting these. Um, remember Brokeback Mountain, you know, like the, how big of a deal that movie was when it came out. It's like two men. Totally. You know, and it's like they had this romantic thing. It was so taboo. And, and it's like that was so shocking back then. But I think a lot has changed in the media since then. And now it's less shocking, which is really interesting. You brought up divorce rates. And I, out of curiosity, just wanted to look it up in real time. So I found an article, Whitney, from ifsstudies.org. It was published in November of 2020. And it said the divorce rate hit a record low. For every 1,000 marriages in the U.S. last year, only 14.9 ended in divorce, according to a newly released American Community Survey from the Census Bureau. This is the lowest divorce rate we have seen in 50 years. It's even slightly lower than in 1970, when 15 marriages ended in divorce per 1,000 marriages. Super fascinating. And also... Apparently, the median duration of marriages in the United States has increased almost one year in the past decade, from 19 years of marriage in 2010, rather, to 19.8 years in 2019. So it's saying that, yeah, the divorce rate is dropping right now. And it talks about stability of kids being in the house during the pandemic. It talks about the economic advantages on your taxes of staying married the impact of disconnection by being alone. I mean, it's really interesting to dig into the psychology of this, right? Is like, okay, so people aren't getting divorced, but are they doing it because they, you know, are they doing it for the kids, quote unquote, staying together for the kids? Are they doing it because of the rampant economic destruction that's happened in the past 12 months? Are they doing it because they are afraid of being alone? It doesn't go deeper into the psychology behind it, but those three things kind of jumped out at me of like, I wonder why people are staying together. You know, is it really out of love and connection or is it more out of fear and convenience? Because if it's out of fear and convenience, then what happens when the pandemic ends? That's what I'm curious about. You know, once people have more, a feeling of more economic stability or the kids are back in school or they're feeling more, I guess, connected to their workmates or their friends or they can go out more. I, want, I wonder if that's going to shift this conversation statistically, you know, once people have access to those things again. And I guess for me too, you know, it, it goes back to what you were saying about the motivations of why people choose to get married in the first place. And I think if people are choosing to be in a romantic partnership out of loneliness, or in many cases, to somehow try and get the love, the validation, the attention and approval we didn't get as children. You know, and I think in a lot of cases, people are bringing their unhealed trauma from childhood and then expecting their partner, romantic partner, 
or in some cases their friends to give them what they feel they, their parents didn't give them. And this is a really slippery slope, isn't it? Because putting a romantic partner in a, in a parent role is a super uncomfortable thing. And I don't mean like BDSM daddy stuff. That's a different, <laughs> I don't mean that. I mean, you know, literally having to parent a partner because they didn't get the love, validation, approval, direction, and wisdom they wanted from their parents. And, and this is something that I'm kind of looking at in my relationship history. You know, did I engage in any of that in terms of either playing, trying to play the father role or maybe looking to be to be mothered in some ways by the women that I was with? Because I certainly have trauma that I'm still working on in terms of abandonment and not good enoughness. And so I think, I think if I'm honest about it, Wit, I think the fear of abandonment has been so strong and it's been such a trigger trauma in my life that if I look back at certain relationships I've been in, I think I have stayed longer than my heart wanted to be in them because I was afraid of the abandonment. So the fear of abandonment, either being abandoned or abandoning someone else in the past has kept me in relationships longer than I think I ought to have been in them because of that unhealed trauma. And I think that's another layer to look at in relationship, isn't it? How are we using a person or a relationship to try and get our needs met? This is a really important question because I often think it's like the frame that I put on it is much like you said about you feel like you don't have this burning need to be in a romantic relationship. But I think for some people, it is a burning need. I mean, we have billions of dollars on dating apps and cosmetics and dating coaches and relationship coaches trying to help you find your person. And it's interesting because if, if we were to remove this fervent need of I've got to find my person to feel complete. I mean, entire industries would pretty much collapse if people were just like, whether I have a partner or don't have a partner, I'm going to be fine. That's a very dangerous mentality from a business perspective for all, like I said, all the billions of dollars that are pumped into coaching and dating apps and relationships and working on yourselves and preparing for your partner to come in. But to your point, it's like, what if we were to accept the fact that there are no guarantees and it's quite possible we might end up alone without a romantic partner. And can we be okay with that? You know, that that's one thing that I've done a hell of a lot of work on and keep working on wit to what you brought up is whether I do have a life partner or or a wife or I don't, can I live a good, fulfilled, meaningful life? And the answer is yes. It just requires shedding a hell of a lot of conditioning. A hell of a lot of conditioning. And I also don't think it's necessarily wrong to want those things. That's not what I'm saying. Of if you really, really do feel like you want a life partner, a husband, a wife, that's a that's a vision of yours. I'm not saying that that's something to be wrong with. I think it is important to ask ourselves why we want things though. And for me, I've taken periods of intentional aloneness and singleness because I knew that I had to work on certain things and there was a lot of pain and sadness and trauma that was really preventing me from connecting on a level as I wanted to with a partner. And so I think periods of really intentional aloneness and singleness is really, it can be a very healthy thing, you know, as opposed to jumping from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship, which I've also done in the past. But I think that honoring the times that we need to work on ourselves, heal ourselves, regain our confidence and perspective and get clear about why we want to be in a relationship. I think this is, that's a really important question because again, 
I sound like a broken record, but if we're lonely, we're despondent, we have a broken heart, and we think that by jumping into the next relationship, that's going to heal us, it doesn't heal us. So I think, I don't know, I'm just reiterating a lot of the same things here. I think I think whether or not we have this mad rush after the pandemic ends, I have a few girlfriends that have joked, including our, our mutual friend, Lish, that it's going to be like the dating scene when the pandemic ends. Like I've had some girl, some friends of mine that are women be like, it's going to be like the snarling wildebeests of men have been <laughs> have been locked in the dungeon and they're lonely and they're horny and they're actually not looking forward to the dating scene after the pandemic because they're like dudes are going to be so thirsty after this they're going to be acting so inappropriately and it's just been it's been funny to engage in those conversations with mutual friends of ours where they're like ugh like on one hand, they want to start dating again, but on the other hand, they're kind of mortified to see how men are going to be behaving after all this ends, you know, and and not to throw guys under the bus, but I can see where they're coming from. You know, <laughs> it's like dude's been locked up for a year without any female contact or human contact or male contact, any romantic sexual contact. It's going to be fascinating when shit opens up again. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it'll be fascinating for socializing in general. Because a lot of people have have been yearning for human connection, you know, and, and doing it virtually, there are studies that show it's just not the same, it doesn't have the same impact. It doesn't hit us on, on the psychological needs. And, you know, what's interesting, it's like, I'm curious about the COVID children, the kids that were born during this time or were very young during this time, and they're growing up. This is their reality. And how is that shaping them mentally? I saw one video of a parent talking about how any time that they take their child into a social setting like grocery shopping, it's major stimulation for these children because they're not used to being around that many people. And think about the kids that are in school now. School is completely different. They can't, I don't know if kids are like allowed to well, I guess it really depends on where they live, but I think a lot of school systems have kept kids separate, you know, the six feet apart from one another. They're not touching each other as much and that might be benefiting their health or maybe not. I don't know. But mentally, imagine it's got to feel really confusing or maybe it's reshaping their brains and maybe it'll be challenging for them to socialize. I mean, that, that's what's going to be really interesting. Given that we're approaching the year mark with COVID in the U.S. and just like the quarantine or the physical distancing that we've been doing, it's definitely going to have an impact. You know, there are people like me that don't I don't personally feel that impacted by it because I I enjoy spending a lot of time by myself. But as we've talked about before, the challenge is that we're we're not moving that muscle, right? So we're not exercising our socializing muscles. And so it might feel even harder to socialize for someone like me after this. I'm so used to being being more on my own and not going to events. And I think that's really helpful for introverts in some ways. And I certainly don't mind socializing online and, you know, using platforms like Clubhouse to form connections with people. That's fine with me. 
<laughs> no one's really going to know until we start having more in-person interaction again. And I, I agree. It is, it is going to be interesting for friendships looking, looking at how I haven't seen some friends since this happened, or maybe I've seen them very, very briefly, how my dynamics with some friends have changed based on their viewpoints on, on the pandemic, their behavior during the pandemic. I mean, a lot is changing for us socially, whether it's romantic or friendship and family too, you know? I actually feel closer to my family. I feel like it brought us together in a lot of ways. And I had made the decision to go spend a few months with them last year. And I think I was extra motivated to do that because of what's been going on and because it's taught me how precious all this is. And I, as I said, I, I look forward to feeling more comfortable traveling because I would like to go spend more time with my family. And all of these dynamics, I think, are changing in ways that we just don't know the ripple effect yet. To your point, I was having a text conversation with our mutual friend, Elle, who, as a side note, if anyone is in Los Angeles or passing through LA, she has a really incredible upcycled, sustainable vintage clothing store in Highland Park called Marquee Moon. But Elle and I were talking, Whitney, about the the simultaneous desire to go to these events and go to concerts and go to bars and be in a larger social context and also the fear of it. It's a desire and a fear. She said that and I said, you absolutely read my mind because someone who is labeled an extrovert, and I agree with it, I, I have tended in historically to go toward the side of extroversion. I miss being on a stage. I miss playing shows. I miss going to shows. I miss the trade shows we talk about. I miss, I miss just having like, you know, a dinner party with friends, you know, something even as simple as that. But when I think about going to a festival, a concert, even the trade shows you and I talk about, my body also has this really interesting reaction of almost, I don't even know how to describe this, assuming that I'm going to feel panicked and anxious. And I don't know that that's true. But when I put myself and sort of imagine myself walking the show floor at Natural Products Expo or, you know, being at Burning Man or Coachella, or whatever, you know, I, I imagine sort of these large scale gatherings. And there's a part of me again, that's like, oh my God, I miss that. I want to do those things. But when I actually imagine myself in it, I start to feel some anxiety build up like in my gut. I'm like, that's going to be imagine myself with all these people surrounding me and all their energies and, you know, thousands being surrounded by thousands or even tens of thousands of people and wonder how I'm going to do in that context. Because in the past, it wasn't a big deal. But when I think about it now, Whitney, I start to feel nervous. Nervous is the right word. I start to feel nervous about it. And I'm curious for you as someone who is on the other side of the coin, you tend to lean toward introversion. When you start to think about big events like this, what comes up for you? Do you feel that desire and nervousness and fear? Or what, what comes up when you put yourself in that context? I haven't really thought about it. In this moment, I don't feel concerned about them per se. I think generally I make decisions when the decision is presented and right now that hasn't been. So until someone says, hey, like you can go to this event now and here's how it's going to be handled. I think that's the only way that I could figure out if I would feel comfortable with that. I did see a friend of mine believe that this friend went to an in-person event recently. And I, I remember feeling like surprised by that. And I know one other person, an acquaintance of mine that, that also went to another in-person event. And I was just kind of surprised because I didn't realize that those were happening. But you know what? I also trust that people are going to make the best decisions for themselves. I, I haven't been presented with an opportunity to do much in person. So I haven't 
had to say yes or no to them. And I don't think I feel ready. But then again, if if an event was laid out in a very specific way and and I felt trusting of, of the organizers and I think maybe I'd consider it, I suppose. I guess I'm not really concerned yet. And I also feel like as an introvert, this downtime has been really rejuvenating. So when an event comes up, I don't I don't feel eager to go to an event, but I feel like, okay, like I could handle it. You know, I've, I've uh, replenished my energy for almost a year now. And I think I'd be, I'd be open to, to experiencing it again. You know, when I did my cross country trip last year, that felt really satisfying for me because it, I didn't have a lot of interaction with people, but I, I felt because I was like out in the world, literally in the country, going across the country, like just being in different environments was really satisfying for me. And just seeing people from a distance, I feel like is is good for me mentally. Like, I mean, I my desk is in front of a, a window on on a decently busy street or like going to the grocery store. Like I just that's enough like <laughs> interaction for me personally. And sometimes that feels uncomfortable. You know, I don't when I'm in situations, Jason, where I don't feel like they have been properly set up. That makes me uncomfortable. Or I don't feel like control. Like if I, because right now I just, I, I want to keep my distance from strangers. That makes me feel more comfortable. But, but if I know that that stranger is being mindful or I know that there's like a system in place to keep us apart and that the surfaces are being cleaned, like, you know, if, if I feel like the, that is being well taken care of, great. But I've gone into some grocery stores, for example, and I'm like, I don't know if they're really being mindful right now. And another example is I drove by the other, evening in an area of Los Angeles. And there were so many people out now that were allowed to eat outdoors again at restaurants. There were so many bars and so many restaurants full of people on their outdoor tables. And I just thought, wow, like I have zero desire to do that. Maybe I'd go to a restaurant, but I don't feel like I need to go to a restaurant. You know, I'm happy getting takeout, making food at home. Like that's completely fine. But I was more fascinated by the people that were out at bars socializing. And I guess some people are just really eager to get back into that world of of socializing at, you know, in these public settings. It's just not for me. Yeah, we go back to one of the aspects of our conversation when we started this podcast, which is we're hardwired for connection. We have desire. We want to be with people. Yeah. The stay-at-home order getting lifted in Los Angeles has been really fascinating, driving down like Melrose Avenue and seeing the sidewalks packed with people. But again, it, it goes back to people are hard, hardwired for connection. They're hardwired for tribalism. They want to be around other people. And you know, our reality in Los Angeles is not the same reality as, say, people in Texas and Florida or states that maybe didn't have a stay-at-home order, Whitney, or or states that are allowing people to have indoor things. And I don't know. I think this kind of maybe puts kind of somewhat of a bow on this conversation of people are doing things differently. And for a human being to explore love and connection, companionship in a structure that doesn't fit the norms, hopefully we as humanity continue to try and understand and embrace people living in alternative structures of relationship and alternative structures of careers that's another thing too that we could, you know, offshoot of this is choosing a career that society doesn't understand or your parents don't understand. I mean, there's so many permutations of this conversation, but I think it it ultimately comes back to the work of us as individuals finding out who we are, 
what we're passionate about, what has great meaning, and living in alignment with that and doing the work to to find out more and more about what we want, why we want it, and who we truly are, what makes us tick. That's what this is really about. And then having the courage to live a life that we feel in aligned with, no matter what people think. That's really, the I think, one of the toughest things is not necessarily getting clear about what you value and, and what's important to you, the kind of life you want to live, but then realizing if that life structure doesn't fit the norm, preparing yourself for questions and pushback and maybe even some violence in certain ways. So we are curious, dear listener, how you feel about these subject matters, alternative relationships, platonic partnerships, how you feel about reintegrating into the world romantically or, or in any other context. So we always love hearing from you directly. Our email where you can reach Whitney and myself is hello at wellevator.com. And that's also our website, wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, where you can find the show notes for this episode. You can find that great article from The Atlantic that we highly recommend you read. Also, the articles about the divorce statistics and any other great resources, including Esther Perel's work. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. And you can also find us on social media. As Whitney mentioned earlier, we're both on Clubhouse. If you happen to be on that app, we have a weekly Wednesday room called The Dolphin Tank which is a natural products community. It's a pitch session for brands, entrepreneurs, investors, influencers, impactors, CEOs, anyone who's involved in the natural products and wellness industries to come and tell us about what you're up to in the world, what your goals and ambitions are, and also how we can support you. So if you're on Clubhouse or you're getting on Clubhouse, you can join us in the Dolphin Tank. We will link to that in the show notes where you can Get notified in your email when we go live every Wednesday from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific. And uh, we've got a great, great group and community in there and would love for you to join us if you're in the industry. And on all the social platforms, we're at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R dot com. So thanks for getting uncomfortable with us and exploring these topics of connection, romance, relationship, doing things differently, because it's something that Whitney and I are always trying to open our minds and our hearts to exploring on a much more broad and deep level. So we love you. We appreciate your support of the podcast. And we'll catch you again soon with another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.